From Social Service Dashi, I'm Jingyao. Cooperative, a good space, a good friend to this podcast, ran two listening living labs and produced two corresponding listening reports to document the experiences and insights of migrant worker communities and low-income communities in Singapore. With Representative Vandana Jairam today, we focus on migrant worker communities focused on the four issues and recommendations on high recruitment debt, barriers of access to healthcare, struggles with dormitory experience, as well as social exclusion of migrant voices. So take us through the experience of participating in one of the 11 focus group discussions, right? So give us a bit more color and details on who the individuals and organizations involved are in these discussions and how you would describe the structure and nature of these conversations you had with these different individuals and organizations. So the 11 leaders who we involved in these discussions come from different stakeholder groups uh, comprising of migrant workers themselves, nonprofit representatives, academics, dorm operators, doctors, and employers in the whole migrant worker space. And it was important for us to really get uh, people who are in uh, positions of authority where they're doing some initiatives or they are part of something uh, and migrant workers who are community leaders themselves. For example, they are organizing their own initiatives to India communities in these conversations because uh, we felt that it's really important to get their perspectives heard. And we had two types of conversations. First was uh, one was as a big group with all of us present to make sense of the key issues in the migrant worker space. And each leader could contribute their own uh, lived experiences and their own perspectives of these issues and see other perspectives surface at the same time. So this big group conversation was really important as it allowed for everyone to have not only listen to different perspectives, but also go through certain mindset shifts in their own perspectives. Because they could then see what their own blind spots are and then, you know, practice a certain sense of empathy and then go through a bit of internal change as well. And for us, for this whole Living Labs initiatives, this was really important as a long-term meaningful change that we want to see in the space as well. Because the biggest barrier to why these issues are not getting resolved is the fact that no one is really listening to each other and understanding where each other is coming from. But but in, and, and everyone's focused more on blaming each other or seeing why we are different rather than why maybe we are similar or where, or where we can align on our perspectives with these issues. And the second type of conversation which we had was individual focus group discussions with these different leaders to make sense of their own perspectives. So these kind of discussions were necessary as well because we could then deep dive into particular perspectives. And some leaders may not feel so comfortable sharing their perspectives in a big group setting as well. So it was a safer space for them to be able to articulate certain perspectives that they had or uh, views that they had, which they feel might be very different from others. Yeah. And the underlying notion of kind of like listening and trying to create, in my words, like a, a safe space is to kind of create, I guess, common ground, right? In that sense. And yes. um, part of the, that's part of the listening motivation. And through those two formats, the big group discussions and the smaller formats, the team then settled on four key issues. And I thought we could take them in turn, right? For each 
you know, I'll briefly kind of summarize the findings first before hearing from you about the insights and recommendations. So the first of the four issues is high recruitment debt, including from recruitment, training, and transportation fees, right? So tell us what are some of the problems which emerge from, from high recruitment debt for migrant workers. For the issue of high recruitment debt, the first big problem for the worker is that the money that they want to send home as remittances, um, the savings they have, and also the money available for their daily expenses, this is all reduced significantly due to them having to pay off the debts that they incurred from the entire process of recruitment. This leads to them to not be able to fully benefit from the labor that they're doing in Singapore, when the whole objective is for them to earn well in Singapore so that they and their families have a better life. And the next related problem to this is that the worker will be less likely to resist any exploitative demands from the employer, like salary reductions or unsafe work, as they fear losing their jobs. And their jobs are often the only way they can earn money to pay off their debts. So they are trapped in this cycle, in a sense, of having to pay debts and also having to secure their job. And the last problem that stems from this issue of high recruitment debt is how it can affect the mental health of workers, which we got to hear from the nonprofit group representatives, the doctors and the migrant workers themselves. So it was really important for us to not look at the financial burden of debt in a vacuum and, it's, and how it's really deeply intertwined with mental health as high recruitment debt is a significant source of stress in the daily life of the worker. So these problems emerging due to high recruitment debt, therefore, you can see are quite interconnected. And what we've realized is that it's important to look at recruitment debt, not simply as a financial issue in isolation, but holistically and in connection to other domains in a migrant worker's life. Yeah, and, and from that interconnected perspective, the aim, as you mentioned, is to smash or end that vicious cycle, right? That, that a lot of migrant yeah. workers find themselves trapped in. So in addition to, you know, recommendations like ethical recruitment and alternative systems beyond having middlemen, what are some of the proposed recommendations that the that emerged from the from the living the listening living labs and that came up in the recommendations for the report? Yeah, so we spoke to different people like, like employers, migrant workers, academics uh, who have researched extensively about the recruitment process and also leaders who are part of companies which have tried out alternative recruitment systems. And we spoke to all of these people to try to understand, you know, the recruitment process itself, the role of the middleman middle or agent and what can be done. The main recommendation we heard from many of them was that we need to document the recruitment process much more extensively in order to understand why we can really intervene to reduce the debt for the worker. We currently know a bit about the general profile of the middlemen or agents and how they can be connected to workers formally or informally. They can be anyone from family members, friends, current migrant workers, and licensed recruiters. We also do know a bit about the reasons why exploitative recruitment practices persist, but however, we have not documented the complex social networks in this entire recruitment process, which exists between the migrant workers, the various agents and middlemen they are in contact with, and the ex employers as extensively as we need to. We also do not have enough documentation of the cash flows during the recruitment process. Lastly, the exact role or function of the middleman is unclear in terms of whether they add value from the industry standpoint. Do they, for example, help to select the more skilled workers from the rest when they recruit, or do they only select workers who can pay more fees to them? So the middleman's role in this whole 
mapping needs to be understood better. There are, of course, challenges to documenting the recruitment process because it is a transnational process that goes between the home countries of the workers and Singapore. And the process may vary a lot between different home countries like India, Bangladesh, China, and other countries. And furthermore, there are also uh, there are both informal and formal social networks involved throughout this process as agents can be informally connected to the, to the workers. While this was the main recommendation we found from our conversation, uh, conversation about de- documenting the recruitment process, we also got to know from people like employers that the recruitment process has changed a lot as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic due to travel restrictions and hence global labor shortages as a result of the ongoing pandemic. Migrant workers are currently in much higher demand in Singapore. The bargaining power has been shifting to workers from employers and employers actually now have to bear more recruitment, recruitment costs instead of the workers. So this led to the question, of whether recruitment debt is indeed an urgent issue to address now, given these changes to the system. And will it remain a problem after the pandemic or will the system have changed by then uh, with a lot of the employers bearing all the recruitment costs as a standard? But regardless of whether the issue of high recruitment debt for the workers will remain a problem after the pandemic, the recommendation to document the recruitment process will still help to prepare us in case it does become an urgent problem to to tackle or even worsens after the pandemic. Yeah, I was going to say that's one of the few bright spots in terms of bargaining power shifting from uh, shifting the other direction, right? Moving in general, not just for migrant workers, but moving from capital to more labor from employers to employees, which is good. And then hopefully that persists in the, in the, in the years or decades to come. And just want to make a meta comment, which is a pretty interesting one, which is evident for listeners from your sharing and from the report. It's one thing that the report does really well, which is making clear what is known and what remains to be known. And, and I think that's quite important to mention as well. Yeah. So that was the first one, right? That was about high recruitment debt. After high recruitment debt, the second one, the second issue was about barriers of access to healthcare, which includes high cost, cultural differences, lack of trust, healthcare providers, lack of awareness and social stigma. So how adequate are existing initiatives based on the large conversations and small conversations you've had through the listening labs? Yeah. So the existing initiatives, um, uh, for example, so there are like a few. There's the establishment of medical centers for migrant workers by the government. There have been efforts by nonprofit organizations like HealthServe to make healthcare more affordable for workers, and also several ground up efforts to create, like, reduce the cultural barriers and gaps between workers and healthcare professionals. For example, creating websites with bilingual translations of healthcare related information and terms for migrant workers and healthcare professionals to use. And these all have been helpful in addressing some of the barriers of access to healthcare and bridging the gap between healthcare professionals and migrant workers to an extent. They do help to reduce costs of healthcare. They do make healthcare services closer to and more accessible for workers, like in terms of the physical location, right, of um, having more medical centers near them, 
And they also try to reduce the cultural barriers, such as the language gap between the migrant workers and healthcare professionals. However, there are still um, other barriers of access that remain. Firstly, workers have a lack of trust in seeking help from the healthcare system due to their fear of losing their jobs, you know, if, if employers know they are unwell. Often in a medical consultation, a supervisor or someone from the company or workers from may accompany them and during the consultation. And for the worker, they may feel threatened by the supervisor's presence, right? Because they may be reporting things about the worker's health to the employer and safeguarding the employer's interests in retaining a healthy and productive workforce. Of course, from an employer standpoint, they need to be concerned about the productivity of their workers for the viability of their business. But the worker then feels afraid to seek help formally if they're unwell, because this fear of losing their job may be running in the back of their mind. And other barriers of access to healthcare, like cultural differences in terms of migrant workers, different understandings of healthcare and preference for self-medication also remain. And they are not addressed really by these current efforts. And workers also experience social stigma as they fear being formally labeled by a doctor as unfit or having issues to do you know, with mental health as a label on them. And they may choose, therefore, not to seek help from a formal healthcare system as a result. Overall, the question really remains of how do we ensure that the worker really feels comfortable enough to seek help from the healthcare system? We may provide them access to all these different healthcare providers and medical centers and make the cost of the health uh, healthcare affordable for them. But it still remains to see like where, how much can we make them feel so comfortable to come, come forward and seek help from the healthcare system. And one of the particularly pernicious challenges which team wrote, and I quote, we discovered that migrant workers with chronic health conditions have specific issues when navigating the healthcare system, end quote. And you pointed some of this out um, in terms of accessibility, in terms of being comfortable, as you've emphasized. What are some of the proposed recommendations which emerged from the listening labs and from the report? Okay, so for the chronic conditions, like we like we have diabetes, hypertension, and even mental health, health issues, we found out that there are very specific challenges that workers face. So the first recommendation would be to address the issue of the lack of insurance coverage available for chronic health conditions for workers. So currently, the insurance available is more catered towards injuries or acute conditions. But for chronic conditions that are really long-term and you know the workers need to keep buying the medication or, or, or going to a doctor, um, there is just a lack of insurance available to manage these costs. And as a result, migrant workers may, may just resort to self-medicating instead of really seeking help formally, which may lead to their chronic condition to worsen and be left unchecked in the future. And secondly, a lot of the people we spoke to pointed out that we need to address the issue of the lack of continuity of care for chronic, chronic health conditions between workers' homes, home countries, and Singapore. So in the case of workers, this, this issue of lack of continuity of care, when migrant workers go back home um, during their breaks and they want to come back, Healthcare providers in Singapore who they might be seeing have no knowledge of their medical treatment back in their home country or even before, when newly when migrant workers are newly uh, coming to Singapore the healthcare providers in Singapore don't know you know whether these workers have any chronic conditions or how have the doctors in their home countries been addressing them 
And this action, this uh, lack of knowledge, this lack of continuity of care makes it difficult to treat workers when they, for example, run out of medication in Singapore, when their symptoms worsen and they are moving between countries. There is also a lack of continuity of care for chronic health conditions in between health checkups when workers are in Singapore. And this was really uh, quite evident during the pandemic, right? Because for a long period of time, the workers were stuck in their dormitories. They did not have access to medical checkups outside of the dormitories in the medical centers. So if they had a chronic health condition and it worsened and they came back after many months, it, they just there was no continuity of care in that aspect. And workers also st- often stopped taking their prescribed medications issued by the uh, doctors in the medical centers when they f- when they feel better. But then, you know, the chronic conditions are left uncontrolled. And in the dormitories as well, the conditions and, and also in the work sites, they may not be conducive for the treatment of these chronic conditions and to ensure this continuity of care. The third recommendation was also to maybe address the f- the fear that migrant workers have in declaring their chronic health conditions. So migrant workers often feel uncomfortable, you know, like declaring that they have chronic health conditions before they come to Singapore. And sometimes it is also difficult to know whether they they do have it because uh, we don't know whether the healthcare providers in back in the home countries have actually declared that for them. And workers why they fear feel uncomfortable declaring this is that they fear rep- repatriation if employers in Singapore find out about these their health conditions. Employers do have very practical concerns, as we know, about the productivity of their workers. So if they, if they find out that their workers have these chronic health conditions, they may not want to re- retain them at, in, in their companies. So these were the three uh, recommendations that we heard. <laughs> Which is a nice kind of demonstration of how interconnected the issues are, right? Because when you talk about fear of employers that came up during the discussion about high recruitment debt, about how there's control and fear in that sense. And then um, we talked about COVID as well, which leads to the third issue about dormitory experience, right? I believe most people would, would resonate with the description by Ambassador Tommy, Tommy Cole that, that the fact that they've been in the dormitories for I mean, close to two years since it's, it's almost disgraceful as in, I think your phrase is. So maybe this maybe needs the least exposition, but give us a summary of the background in terms of the third issue, with, which is the struggles with dormitory experience. What's the background and what's currently being done at the dormitories for the migrant workers? Yes. So you, as you said, right, the living conditions and a lot of the worker dormitories have been cast into the spotlight because of COVID-19. Like we know, like now the issues of the crowded and cramped unsanitary dorms have, have surfaced. And uh, there have been efforts made by the government to try to address some of these concerns. So there have been changes. So, for example, before previously, it was uh, typically 12 to 16 uh, workers housed in one room. But now it's gone down to 10. Um, there have also been more ensuite toilet facilities per uh, per room of uh, like. Uh, workers and the living space of for each worker has been increased and wi-fi and uh, there has there's been more wi-fi in common areas and dorm rooms available for the workers to use these are all more physical infrastructure uh, related changes that the government has made but we still see a lot of issues 
and in the in the dormitories and workers are not really happy with the conditions that they are in there have also been a lot of mental health struggles right so then what are the gaps right that these efforts may not be addressing at this point and we realized that it's really the emotional needs of the migrant workers that have not been really looked at and there were four emotional needs that we saw that were really important for migrant workers and these were also highlighted by other leaders we spoke to like dormitory operators so the four needs are have or having a private space to call home having facilities for self expression and development feeling a sense of community within the dorm and also being treated with respect within the dorm as well and in response to those four problems you know and we also know it's it's been some time since the, the the listening report was published but news reports have come up about continued unsanitary conditions of course it's beyond the physical but in response to those four problems what did your participants say were the solutions or the recommendations that should be enacted yeah so in the main thing is that uh, for so for the privacy of to call home it's to create more spaces maybe for them to have this private space to call home uh, because in a in a crowded like dorm room when they are surrounded by other workers they feel they don't feel comfortable talking to their loved ones to back at home so having more corners having more spaces where this could be done in a dorm setting for facilities for self expression and development uh, workers and some of the dorm operators as well said that they could have more facilities like study tables music rooms reading rooms read, uh, things like that which could be created and so that the the dorm doesn't just be uh, it's not just a space where the worker comes to to sleep but it's also a space where they can grow and uh, have a holistic envi- environment to develop themselves further right so even having facilities to train and get upskill themselves would be some recommendations for this and the next need was to feel a sense of community in the dorm right so we know like the the facilities have actually been built in several dormitories especially purpose built dormitories right and dorm operators we spoke to said that maybe uh, workers don't really use these these uh, facilities and migrant workers we spoke to uh, mentioned that maybe a sense of community needs to be fostered in the dormitory before they feel like they feel comfortable to use these facilities and this seems to be a very important emotional need but it's unclear whether this responsibility of community you know building should fall on we should be in the purview of the workers or the dorm operator and this was something maybe that we need to think about whether we need to have more clarity on this issue of who is responsible for fostering the sense of community in the dorm the next thing is about being treated with respect in the dorm setting so some like for this for this issue actually there have been efforts to try to maybe understand the the migrant workers better in terms of their cultural needs and things so the dorm operators that we spoke to have been trying this out so to understand the cultural backgrounds of the migrant workers better so that they the, they can relate to them in the in the dorm setting but more can be done to in maybe include the migrant workers more and make them feel respected in this setting but the last main main thing we heard and this point actually is it cuts across all these these needs and issues is this idea that that we need to address this lack of clarity on who should be responsible for what in the dorm setting so from from the dorm operator's perspective 
they seem to be the ones they are they're the ones often held accountable right when workers living environments are unclean or things go wrong in the dorms or even conflicts happen but to them they also believe that you know workers may also need to have some responsibility for the upkeep of their own living environments it cannot be the sole responsibility of the dorm staff and employers as well you know what is their role in this whole dormitory setting what should they be responsible for doing should they be instructing their workers to keep their rooms clean for example and what is the responsibility of workers to should they be doing the community building aspect should they be responsible for cleaning and up, up keeping their rooms so all this has a lot of lack of clarity and due to this that there is this issue then of you know who's responsible and when issues come up then who needs to sort it out and it does lead to a lot of these emotional needs to be not met in the best ways possible and the key tension that we think we've un- uncovered from all this is are migrant workers really treated as workers in their dormitories or as residents right yeah. because uh, migrant workers come there and and use the space as a as a place to sleep but then is it just what is the role of the dormitory really in their their lives is it just a space where they come to sleep or is it a home away from home for them and then how do we see this right and how do we then treat them in this space. Yeah, I Correct. think that is something no. we need to look at. Yeah. yeah, I was going to jump in. I'm sorry. I was going to jump in yeah, and yeah. see. But you addressed the next point, which is what is their resident status, right? Because to me, of course, dorm operators might disagree, but to yeah. ask the workers themselves to, to take care, of course, your personal space, you clean up and all these things, but what about common spaces and areas, right? It's the equivalent mm. in my mind of asking most of us or folks who live in HDB flats to clean and sweep the void decks and the <laughs> corridors, which most people don't do because that's outsourced to almost ironically migrant workers who often staff the, um, the, 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 the town councils and uh, the cleaners for yeah. these areas as well. And I think that's a conversation, not just sometimes between operators and the workers, but with Singaporeans as well. Like yeah. what's the level of um, exactly. uh, living <laughs> conditions that should be expected? Well, of course, that, that should be continued. I guess we talked about recruitment there. We talked about barriers to healthcare access. And then we just spoke about dormitory conditions, right? The last big issue was social exclusion, which leads quite nicely from the discussion we just had of migrant voices. So could you explain what's meant by in the report, social inclusion or exclusion, as well as the different barriers that are experienced by migrant workers in Singapore in relation to inclusion or exclusion? Mm, yeah. So for the issue of social inclusion, uh, definition by UN and the World Bank, right, is the is that social exclusion is really the improvement of the terms for individuals and groups to fully take part in all aspects of society, including civic, social, economic, and political domains, as well as decision-making activities regarding their own welfare. So what this really means is that social inclusion isn't just about, you know, bonding activities, right, between locals and, and migrants or, or things like that. It, it, it really is on so many levels, we need to include migrant workers or in, in society. And this, it is really then about whether really is my voice heard? Um, am I represented in an accurate way? Do I have an outlet to re, uh, re, voice out my concerns directly to those in power? Can I represent myself? Right. And these are the kind of things that we need to look at when we're looking at social exclusion and social inclusion. And that's why we've purposely um, titled this chapter, like 
social exclusion of migrant voices, because that's the key thing that I think we need to look at in terms of social inclusion and exclusion. So for migrant workers, they are socially excluded on so many levels in our society. So the main two ways that they're excluded is that they are unable to really connect with the rest of society. And this goes back to the whole idea of opportunity to interact with the rest of society and bond with them. So they live in their own systems and networks. They don't have really a lot of connections with us. And uh, there are several reasons why. Uh, second way that they, they are excluded is that they're unable to have their voices heard. So they do have a few opportunities to represent themselves and voice out their own concerns about their welfare. And they are unable to ensure that, you know, if any, if their perspectives are considered, it's really, it's accurately represented and their voices are included in accurately because often there is someone else representing them. For example, an advocacy group, a nonprofit group, the government or anyone else, right? So they don't have that direct, direct access to voice out their concerns. Yeah. Yeah, to remove that, in terms of talking about removing that intermediary, that middle middle person or middle organization, and I kind of like what you said about going beyond that one-off event and that one-off photo opportunity, a photo op, right? Yeah. Maybe let's talk about some of the gaps in the existing efforts and how the report will address some of these um, outstanding yeah. problems, yeah. Yeah, so so for the barriers of these two social exclusion social inclusion of migrant workers in Singapore, so there are like four that we we um, identified. So the first is really the perpetuation of negative stereotypes and misrepresentations of them in public discourse, right? So because this is about their voices, yeah. and their voices are misrepresented or or there are uh, stereotypes about them. And we can see this through uh, uh, the not in my backyard kind of um, expression yep. from a lot of residents, right? And, it th- and during the pandemic as well, various stereotypes about them being unhygienic and, and et cetera surfaced. And yeah, so this was the first uh, big barrier, I think, to the uh, inclusion of their, uh, of their voices. The second is that there is no common understanding amongst different stakeholders about what the level of social ex- inclusion of migrant workers in Singapore should be. So for example, for an employer, maybe it's just to ensure that they are included in terms of they have maybe opportunities to to upskill or uh, you know contribute more to the industry. But you know where where then is the inclusion and how do we qualify that right it's it's different for different empl- uh, different stakeholders what is our threshold in that sense the third thing is that is they are transient workers so they do it is very difficult to ensure that you know they are in singapore for a long period of time and then you know what the, the nature of their job itself presents a lot of barriers because they're not able to for example participate in some activities to bond with Singaporeans or, or do certain things that could ensure that they are included more in society as well. And the last thing is the distant housing locations of them away from resident, like residential estates and neighborhoods. So we do see that dormitories and even recreation centers are, how, are, are so far away from the rest of us that we just find it so hard to you know interact with them or connect with them. And even for construction sites around our homes they always closed up and you never get to see um, workers right it's quite hard to bridge that gap as well yeah so these are some barriers 
And we spend, and, and we're, our final question, we spent the majority of this conversation talking about your work with the listening report. I just wanted to ask you about your own experience of through the focus group discussion, through drafting the report, through working with um, this project for such a long amount of time, what was the most important insight or lesson you've gained from this experience personally in going through this project? For me personally, I think it's it was really the importance of listening to perspectives that we don't normally hear. So I have worked with migrant workers. I have a lot of friends who are migrant workers themselves and it's I, I know their perspectives because I've worked with them. But then for me to get to hear from someone like a dorm operator or employer was really an, an, an eye-opening experience because it also made me you know, think about my own blind spots that I have about these issues. And to get to hear from a dorm operator or employer that they were really happy that we considered their perspectives and we've shown them in this report was a nice thing for me. And yeah, I think it just goes back to the whole idea of listening and being open to taking all these perspectives as lived experiences, as as the truths for, for these different people, instead of looking at it from our own perspective. Yeah, I think that's the main thing for me. Thank you. Thank you, Vandana. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for the work you put in for the report. Thank you for sharing your insights and helping us guide and guide us, guiding us through the report. And thank you for your time and, and all the best with all your future work in the future. Thank you. <laughs>